You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Folks, it's good to be back. I have a number of things that I am going to run through before we get to today's podcast, which is going to be very fascinating, by the way. Uh, number one, I'm going to be back in Australia. You know, I, I, I am amazed, right? Because the first time that I went to Australia was shortly after I turned 30 years old. And since then, and this was in 2015, I've been to Australia four times. And I'm going back again. <laughs> And I'm going to tell you something. Uh, There is something very special about Australia. For those of you that are in Australia, listen to this podcast. That means that you're very special. Yes, it does. Now, I want to tell you that from the 19th to the 21st, I am going to be in Brisbane. And I have been invited to a conference called uh, Elijah Fire 2020 Convergence. And it's being hosted by Firestarters TV. And in the info for this show, you'll actually see a sign-up link. It's right there. Uh, The following weekend, I will be in uh, Adelaide, and we're going to be doing something with Field of Dreams, and uh, there will be details on that to follow because we don't have anything like to present officially right now, but... uh, In between, I'm going to be taking a stop off in Bendigo. And so it's going to be a fun trip. I'm going to be over there for a while. And so if you are in the area, uh, keep an eye out, keep listening. Uh, If you're in Brisbane or that area, you can just go ahead and sign up because I'd love to meet you. Now, I have a new book out, if you didn't know. It's called Advanced Prayers That Shake Heaven and Earth. It is the sequel to Prayers That Shake Heaven and Earth. It picks up where the first one left off where the original set of tools was not getting the breakthrough, the deliverance, and um, whatever we needed to connect that person to in Christ Jesus. The prayers in the second book open up. So, so, so in this book, you have prayers for things like freedom from constellations, freedom from earth systems, synthetic kingdoms, uh, and the Kabbalah tree, to name a few. On that subject... We have uh, just added a uh, the Exposing Kabbalah series to our Bride Ministries Institute. And so now you can get it as a, uh, as a download from our website for, for in, in, under former sermon series for the church. Or you can get it through your Bride Ministries Institute account. It's the same price in both places, making it the least expensive um, course that we have available on the Bride Ministries Institute. We went and put it under level four because it's deep. And for those of you that heard it live, know that. But uh, the reason why we are copying it over is because, well, it, one, that series of messages was was more like a cor- crash course in, in an entirely different belief system that is called Jewish mysticism in in and there's no way to listen to a message one time when it's a new subject and get the whole thing and and we want you guys to get the whole thing because understanding uh 
Kabbalah is actually important when it comes to exposing the strategies of the enemy. And that's the key, right? We don't study Kabbalah to learn spirituality. We study Kabbalah to expose the works of darkness. And, and so that is now going to be available very shortly on our teachable platform for the Bride Ministries Institute. And if you haven't been able to take advantage of the Institute yet or didn't know that we had one, just go to bridemovement.com and click the Institute tab. Now, uh, we have been under development of our new website, which is going to be released uh, along with the Bride Ministries app. And so for those of you that like apps on your phone, you like to be able to just, you know, get a push notification, um, tap the app, listen to something, find something, whatever have you, you're going to have it from us. And um, so that so that'll make your discovering truth experience even more integrated. Now, uh, the app and the website it went through a bit of a delay. We were actually supposed to be done already, but you know how it goes. So uh, we're looking at another week or so uh, before we are making that transition. So very, very soon. Thank you for those of you that are praying for us. Now, um, with all of that said, I just want to say thank you for those of you that continue to support us financially and are starting to support us financially. You are making this possible. We are growing at Bride Ministries. Um, we are expanding. Next year, we are doing our DID Coach Mentorship Program. And uh, with the coaches that we are training and releasing, it is going to allow our platform to really offer much more robust solutions for those of you that are looking for them. So um, in that, we are also saving up and beginning to believe God for a piece of land to ultimately build survivor housing. Uh, we are saving for that. And what are we saving? We're, we're saving what you're sowing. And so uh, with that said, giving at bridemovement.com. That is there for you. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Well, folks, welcome back to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. We're going to be having an interesting show this week. I, I've made a new friend, guys. And his name is Christopher Bowen. And he's joining me because he is a journalist, researcher, and 9-11 truther motivated by Christian values. Uh, he has done deep research into subjects such as the Middle East, the war on terror, political Zionism, the controlled media, and of course, American politics. And he has written a number of books, including the Solving 9-11 series, as well as heaps of articles that can be found at bolin.com. And that's spelled B-O-L-L-Y-N.com. Christopher, welcome to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Oh, thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, you know, it, it, it's a pleasure to be with you, Christopher. And I, and I have to say, you know, just at the outset of this interview, you know, we're going to be talking about some things. Uh, and, you know, some people are going to be very excited. Other people may be less excited. Uh, <laughs> I want to say that I find you to be a very honest researcher. Thank you. You, um, you know are intellectually honest, which is hard to find. 
Mm -hmm. Truly. Uh, because this is an age of polarization. So you're either all in here or you're all in here, but you are just intellectually honest. And I really appreciate that about you. Um, Thank you. Regardless of where <laughs> that honesty may take you. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as we get into some of these things this week, uh, folks, I just want you to, you know, listen with an open ear. And of course, search the things out if you are kind of taken aback. Now, I have a great deal of interest uh, in getting into the subject of Jeffrey Epstein with you, mm -hmm. Christopher, for a number of reasons. Um, one, because I had a guest not too long ago and, and who was also a client of mine named Hope. Many of my listeners are going to remember her story uh, because she was actually abused by him and has the memories to back that up. Uh, of course, then as she was beginning to pursue, get involvement with the criminal case, we went real time through the alleged suicide of Epstein and that drama. And so I am absolutely unresolved on this. And so before we get to him, though, uh, you come to the table with this breadth of research on 9-11. And I actually want to start there because even though this is like almost 20 years ago, so much goes back to that. As a matter of fact, my whole awakening goes back to, it was very interesting, uh, two videos I saw. <clears throat> One of them was called Loose Change on YouTube. Broke my whole worldview. And I was like, you know, but at the same time that I saw Loose Change, I actually saw another 9-11 Truther video that tied in the, uh, 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 the Zionist component of that conspiracy. And, and I watched both and I, at that time, was uh, dispensationalist and very pro-Israel, so to speak. And so I really struggled, choked, and, and never shared that other video with anyone else and really didn't go back to it and just you know, told people about loose change. But anyway, um, all right, I, I just want to start here. Where did your research into 9-11 start? Yeah, I started on 9-11 because I was a investigative journalist working in uh, Washington, D.C. when it happened. Mm -hmm. uh, we were coming down back from a, a weekend up in Vermont, and we were passing through New York City um, in the early morning hours of September 11th, about 2 o'clock in the morning. Looking for a hotel, I was, uh, we wound up staying in a hotel on Highway 95 just inside the Maryland border, and in the morning when we woke up, I saw on the TV that uh, a plane had crashed in the North Tower. And um, I couldn't go to Washington, D.C., obviously, so we, we started to drive back to Chicago uh, on small roads to Pennsylvania. But the thing is, is that my specialty um, in college was Israel and Palestine, the history. And um, I had been writing, I've been writing about Israeli criminality for a long time and um, also government cover-ups. Um, they're, you know, like TWA flight 800 was shot down, apparently shot down off the coast of New York city and uh, sinking of a ship called Estonia in Europe in 1994, a thousand people died. So I, I was familiar with government cover-ups and what, what happened is that with nine 11, as a journalist, I began, you know, looking into it right away. And I saw that the cover the cover-up began basically on day one and when you understand, when you see that, that, that certain information is being 
intentionally kept out of news reports. Um, maybe reported one time, perhaps two times, but then never repeated again. And in that category, we find these eyewitness reports of explosions at the World Trade Center. And that was seen by many people, hundreds of firefighters, many people that were there, but never repeated again. And there was also a, a story about some Israeli men, five Israeli men who were seen videotaping and celebrating the attacks on the World Trade Center from the Jersey side of the river. And this again was, they were first identified as Middle Eastern men, but when the New Jersey newspaper reported that they were Israelis, um, that was the end of the story. It never went to New York City, for example. It wasn't repeated in any other news outlet. So these men were, according to the New Jersey police, were tied into the event. They were connected to it. They knew it was going to happen. They were set up and ready to film it. And so the Israeli connection and the evidence of explosions at the World Trade Center, the way that I saw that these stories were being kept out of the news indicated to me that there was uh, uh, some censorship going on about the story. And we were given a false narrative. We were given a narrative. We were given a narrative that this was done by Osama bin Laden and 19 Arabs and that they did it because they hated our freedoms. And that, that, that story, that what I call a false narrative, because it's not based on any evidence, was given to the American people on day one when George Bush spoke to people at night. And that has been the case ever since. And, and si although 9-11 happened 18 years ago, the fact is, is that it, has, it is the most significant event of our lifetime and that it has fundamentally changed America and the world and it has it brought in in its wake this war on terror, which has gone on now for 18 years plus. And this war on terror is the longest American war and the most expensive war in U.S. history. So it's not something that happened then 18 years ago and it's history. Actually, we need to understand what happened on 9-11 in order to understand that what we're living in now, the times and the, and the zeitgeist that we're living through today. Now, I want to just ask you a few questions, okay, because you, you've clearly researched this very deeply. So I, I just want to throw some of this out there. One, what was the deal with the Pentagon? I, because, you know, I, I don't know that I ever got a resolution on the answer of what blew up the side of the Pentagon. It, it was, they, you know, they said, well, it was a plane, but where was the plane? There, there was no right. crashed plane there. Uh, some people said it was a missile. Well, then who shot the missile? Uh, I, I still don't, and I've kind of left that alone years ago and mm -hmm. just kind of moved on, but I want to ask you because you're the guy. So what do you think is going on with the Pentagon there? Well, that's a, that's a good question because that happens to be the most, one of the most contentious uh, points in the 9-11 truth movement as it is. Um, what happened at the Pentagon? Well, I, I think that what happened at the Pentagon is that a aircraft, I mean, I've, there's there, a lot of things happened at the Pentagon, but the th what happened at the Pentagon that I think can be see, seen by the evidence is that um, uh, some sort of aircraft or perhaps a drone uh, flew towards the Pentagon and fired a missile. And that missile uh, opened up the hole in the, in the, the wall that outside wall of the Pentagon is 24 inches thick of, of concrete and masonry and, and limestone. It's a fortress. And 
then this uh, uh, this aircraft that I think was a small engine plane, perhaps something like a Global Hawk, a, U a UAV, unmanned aerial vehicle, because there is a, a small jet engine wheel, a, a turbine wheel, that is seen in the photographs from the Pentagon, from FEMA. And this, this is about two feet wide uh, in diameter. Uh, and that is much smaller than anything that you would get off of a, a large Boeing aircraft. And then there's the hole, whatever went through the Pentagon went through all the way through the building and exited on what's called the C-ring. And it left a, a round hole, a, a hot round hole, maybe 12 feet across, um, in that wall. And to say that that was done by a, an aluminum-bodied aircraft um, is, is stretching the, you know, it's not possible. I think that, that that's the result of a, of a, of a warhead that, that penetrated through the building and made that hole. And I, I tend to think that something like a Global Hawk was involved because of the size of that engine part. Now, there's a group of people who are saying, are trying to say today that they have evidence that a, a large Boeing 757 or 767, I don't recall what it was, 757, hit the Pentagon. But I simply say to people who, who, who stand by that position, well, in that case, we would have large um, landing gear components mm -hmm. because they would, they would have been tucked under in the, in the fuselage. They would have been in the, in the building. Very large, heavy stuff, and also two large engines. And none of that was seen at the Pentagon. None of it. So we, we, have, we don't have evidence to, to support the case of a, of a Boeing 757, yet we have evidence of something else hitting the Pentagon. So I think it was, and in, the thing is that it's, if, if it were a kind of a drone aircraft that fired a missile, this is similar to what happened at the World Trade Center, especially in the South Tower. In the South Tower, we see this plane coming in, and there are several photographs that show something on the bottom of that plane um, preceding, preceding, just before the plane struck the building, um, this missile-like object was emitted from the bottom of the plane and opened up a hot hole in the building mm. uh, where the fuselage would enter. And then, and then on the far side of the building, we see a, a white hot burning object coming out. Um, and this is very indicative of a missile that was fired to open a hole for the plane, to allow the plane to enter the building because that building had, you know, steel columns on the outside as well, every two feet, every three feet on center. And that, um, that, that missile would have been something like a depleted uranium warhead. So that would create a very hot space. It would, it would, it would ignite anything in the building, in, that, in the computer room. Seemingly there was something that was very much ignited. There were huge explosions. And then uh, it came out the far side of the building burning white hot. And that is, as I said, indicative of a depleted uranium warhead that's burning extremely hot. Wow. Okay. So you see what they, yeah. yes, go ahead. No, so so what, what, what we're talking about is that, that we were told that, that this is a plane hitting, hitting the Pentagon. This is a plane striking the World Trade Center, North and South Tower. Um, there were planes, but whether they were the planes they said they were or, or modified drones that were weaponized. And, you know, there is evidence to indicate that they were weaponized drones. Wow. That will, okay. That makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. That actually makes probably more sense than, I mean, certainly the airplane theory, which, 
<laughs> just mm-hmm. made no sense at all. Okay. And you mentioned something that I, I actually had not heard before, and that was the five Israelis filming. Mm-hmm. I, I actually, I never got that piece. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. What about, what about the whole theory, right? Because the 9-11 truth movement, you, you get this developing alternative storyline that they blew up the buildings. It was a controlled demolition. Mm-hmm. Now, do, do you hold the perspective that they brought in a demo crew that laced the whole building with explosives prior to that event so they could demo it? Or do you, now that you bring in the missile part with, on mm-hmm. the planes, do you mm-hmm. think that it was the, the missile that accomplished the collapse of these massive structures? How, how do you yeah. tie all of these, you know? Yeah, well, I think that, I think that the... The planes striking the building were basically kind of uh, the distraction, the event that was meant to, um, you know, instill in our minds that 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 was the cause of the collapses. Where um, the collapses were obviously done with um, explosives. The buildings fell um, at free fall speed. And, and that means that the lower part of the structure below the impact zone, which was cold structure, no fires there, not compromised, that they failed to, that they failed and they failed at free fall speed. And these buildings were not cheaply built. These were very highly redundant structures, meaning that they had a lot of steel in them. They were, they were really solid. They had a core column section, 47 core columns or box columns that, that held up the core, the, the core of the building and the radio, the uh, elevator shafts but that held the gravity load of the building. And then there, were, then there was an outside perimeter columns um, that held the, the shear load. The, you know. So this was an extremely, extremely strong buildings. And, and for, in order for the buildings to fall at free fall speed, they had to be detonated and blown up floor by floor, um, you know, 10 floors a second, basically. And um, the, the, what was on top, like if, if some people might say that the, the, the top section acted like a pile driver and, and, and crushed the section below it. But what we see is that the, the top part of the building, like on South Tower, actually tilted and was about to fall. But instead of falling as one piece, it, it pulverized in midair. So we have evidence that this was, uh, I mean, destruction. What caused the pulverization of that, that part at the top? You know, it, it just, this, is, this was done with some very strong explosives that were throughout the building. And what, we've, what we do find in the dust from the World Trade Center is we have evidence of something called thermite, right. actually nanothermite, which is used using, made using nanotechnology. In, and, and when you make thermite, which is an incendiary, um, it's used for like melting steel or, or welding steel rails. When you make it using nanotechnology, meaning extremely small particles, um, the explosive power goes up exponentially. And this is found in the dust. This kind of super thermite was found in the dust by a team led by Professor Jones in, in Utah at Brigham Young University. Um, and, and what we find in the, in the World Trade Center is that um, before the South Tower even fell, for example, the area where the plane exited um, began producing tons of molten iron it seems to be iron pouring off the building 
tons of it. And it's like white hot. And, and what caused that? So we, we have, that's, that's evidence of some other kind of thermite, perhaps regular thermite that was in the computer room. You see, it's also important to understand that both planes struck computer rooms, secure computer rooms. And um, these are rooms that contained huge boxes of, uh, of servers, looked like servers and batteries. And in the, in the South Tower, the, the plane went into the Fuji Bank computer room. And I spoke to a man who worked there, and he told me that, you know, the summer before 9-11, they had brought in these big boxes, big black boxes at night. And we, we were told, the techs were told that these were batteries, backup batteries for the computer system. But he said the strange thing was that they were never plugged in. So I think that something like that is where the thermite was held. And when that missile went through the building, it simply detonated these uh, pyrotechnical uh, aspects on, on that, in that computer room. So there was a lot of thermite in there, a lot of explosives in there. And so that when the, when the plane goes into the South Tower, if you look at the pictures, you'll see a, a tremendous explosion coming back mm -hmm. from the point of impact. And it's a very hot explosion, and it's producing a lot of white smoke, which is, again, indicative of thermite. So I think that, that, that the buildings were, were loaded with all kinds of um, explosives and thermite and whatnot, much, much more than was necessary. And this is what fueled the fires. There were, there were fires that raged beneath, beneath the surface for about three months until Christmas of 2001. And, and that made the piles extremely hot so that the, the first responders, their boots were, were melting. Uh, but what, what's more important is that, they, that it was producing this, this very uh, fine smoke, blue smoke, which these first responders and firefighters were inhaling. And this smoke, we, we know from an analysis of the smoke, um, contained, again, unprecedented levels of nanoparticles. Now, this is extremely dangerous because if you inhale these kinds of burning uh, aerosol nano, nanoparticles, it's going to cause uh, uh, you know, cancer and things like that because the nanoparticles are so small that they don't stop in your lung or your, or your soft tissue, but they permeate, permeate all the way into the nucleus of the human cell where they cause things like cancer. So it's, it's a, this is all of these aspects and others have been ignored by the mainstream media. They don't, talk about the, they don't talk about the smoke, the deadliness of the smoke. They don't talk about the fires. They don't talk about what, what could have caused such hot fires to burn for, for three months. I mean, you remember that the piles were being doused with, with water and, and, and extinguishing chemicals uh, round the clock, 24-7. Yet the fires never went out. It took three months before those fires, which are burning deep, deep, deep down. And when they finally got down, when the... When the, when the, the excavators got down to the bedrock of Manhattan, they found molten iron in the molten state. Now, what could have produced that? So, you know, it was not just the planes or the missile that caused the buildings to come down, but there was, there was uh, we have evidence that it was, at least some super thermite was used. Some people say, you know, people, people point, say it was nuclear bombs were used. Some people will say that it was a space weapon. But in my mind, those are red herrings. Those are, those are meant to distract you from the uh, discovery of thermite and nanothermite. Okay. Now the question is, who produced the nanothermite? Was it a government contractor? Was it Bin Laden? Was it Mossad? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good question. That's a good question because you see that at that time, two thousand one, yeah, super thermite was pretty new. 
it had been it, it you know they've been developing it for for years in places like uh, Lawrence Livermore and you know the the National Laboratory in California and, and Sandia, but it was something that it would take a a, a very advanced government high tech nanotechnology department with a lot of funding to make. Um, but it was it it's it was it, the same sort of thing has been made in Germany and Israel, and in fact the the guy that produces these at, at Stanford Research Institute in California, the guy that is in charge of their nanotechnology development, is an Israeli who's been working there since 1984. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 technology that is known among the elite scientists that deal with uh, nanotechnology, but it was not well known by the public. So and and it wasn't meant to be discovered. You see, the discovery of nanothermite and the, well, the discovery of thermite in the World Trade Center. Um, I was involved with this effort, and and I was talking a lot about it in the radio and uh, in back in 2006 when um, I was working with Professor Jones, and I wrote an article: Why did iron boil beneath the World Trade Center? And I I I got a lot of pushback for that because this was a discovery. And Professor, Professor Jones did as well. This, the discovery of thermite and nanothermite in the World Trade Center was a discovery that was not supposed to happen. And when it did, they created these red herrings, um, specifically like Judy Wood's, uh, you know, thing about it, you know, energy beam weapon or something. Uh, Judy, Judy Wood, for her, for her part, says that the, the, the demolition of the World Trade Center was a cold event. Now, the fact is that about 6% of the dust, at least 6% of the dust, is very small, round droplets of iron. And that is a characteristic signature of the dust of the World Trade Center. And there's other elements in there, like uh, molybdenum, that are found, tiny droplets of this, and lead. And even you have pieces of lead that are in the nano size. So the, the, the smoke and the dust was extremely toxic. To have to produce such little little objects of of of, of steel, of iron, and of, of lead would require extremely hot temperatures. So her thesis that the destruction of the World Trade Center was a cold event is is not is not uh, proven by the evidence. Well, before we go further, hey, folks, what you need to know is that I I realized um, after looking into Christopher a little bit before bringing him on a podcast, uh, that, that his research really ticked off some people. Uh, I, I just want to break from this storyline. So you can give our audience a little debrief about the invasion of your home in 2006 as you were going after some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, as I said, I went out to Utah in, I, I, I corresponded with Professor Jones in 2005. He was interested in, in knowing, I had reported back in 2002 about the discovery of the molten iron in the basements of the World Trade Center at the, at the bottom level of all three buildings that fell. North Tower, South Tower, and Building 7. Larry Silverstein's Building 7. In the basements of all three, the people who were involved in, in removing the, con, the, the rubble told me they found molten, they called it steel, molten steel in the molten state in all three bottoms and all three basements and I asked I asked um, it was confirmed by two people there the, the people who ran the ex excavation and, and the contractor who did that particular building and um, it's important to note that in in the World Trade Center all three um, sites North Tower South Tower and Building 7 
Those three crime sites, I would call them, were cleaned up by foreign companies. One foreign company for each one, not American. So the, the, you have to understand that the cleanup of the World Trade Center was a, a giant destruction of evidence. Mm. The evidence from the crime scene where some 2,600 people were killed was being removed, taken, carted away to New Jersey, um, cut into small pieces, mixed with other scrap steel, and sent to Asia. And this began on day one. And this process, this process as well, this process of destroying the evidence had been prepared and organized before the crime. So um, your question again, remind me of what I've gotten off the track a little bit. It's okay. Uh, I was asking you about the invasion of your home. Oh yeah, right, the invasion of my home. Well, then I went out to Utah in 2006, met with Professor Jones. He wanted me to get some samples of the dust I was going to California and my family, and we went to Davis, where um, I interviewed the man who analyzed the smoke, mm-hmm. and the Davis, the Delta Group at Davis University, which analyzes aerosols for air pollution and whatnot. And, and he told me that the smoke from the World Trade Center contained unprecedented amounts of nanoparticles. And I asked him, what could have produced the nanoparticles in the smoke? And he said, only temperatures hotter than the boiling point of the metal involved. That meant that whatever metal was found in, the, in, in nanoparticle forms, that it was boiling. It was boiling. That's how hot, that's how hot those fires were beneath the, beneath the surface. And uh, that was pretty big. And when I wrote, reported that article, the next day my travel, my travel allowance for my newspaper was cut, reduced to nothing. So my newspaper wasn't very fond of that story either, although they, they printed it. Uh, it's like the pressure began even from the newspaper I was working for. And I, we went back to my home in Illinois where I had, we had left a, a year earlier because we were in, being intensely surveilled by the FBI informants. And we um, went to Europe and I had been called back to my office in Washington to go to, down to Venezuela and whatnot. And when I got back, when we came back from Utah at that, from that trip to Chicago, immediately there was this police activity around my house, increased police activity. And that, Finally, about a week later, it resulted in a, in a police raid at my house where undercover tactical men wearing, wearing blue body armor and, and blue jeans, whatnot, not identified as police, responded to in my 9-11 call. My 9-11 call had been about them because they had been going around my neighborhood for a couple of days in a row, and I was worried. I was alarmed. And uh, uh, I looked out the window after I coming home from the store, and I saw that my wife and my daughter were on the driveway uh, confronting these three men coming up the driveway. And I, I went out on the driveway to protect my wife and, and my child and ask who they were. And um, after a few seconds, they turned, they, they, I, I went to get my brother in the house. They chased me, threw me down on the ground, uh, tasered me and knelt on my forehead and, and did all kinds of terrible things. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then charged me with attacking them. And that was criminalized. I was, I was taken to the court and I fought it in a four day trial, but my evidence wasn't allowed. My expert witness wasn't allowed. Um, they lie, openly lied on the stand and you know, I, before sentencing, uh, we, we, we left, we went to, went to Canada and went to Europe. God. That was, that was, that was 12 years ago. <laughs> well, there you go, man. Um, all right. So, so, I mean, obviously, right. 
the intellectual honesty of your research has garnered certain kinds of attention. I, I, I wanted to let you share that just because, I, I mean, I think that when these things happen and uh, when, when, when people are persecuted in this kind of manner, it, it speaks volumes. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so look, okay, so we're coming back to this whole storyline of, of, of 9-11 and then going forward because, it re, you, like you said, this event has defined the world we live in today. And, and for some people, right, people that were born in 2002, 2003, they don't remember a pre-9-11 world. Right. It, 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 it's really interesting. And, and <laughs> it, you know, the storyline looks like, uh, yeah, bin Laden and this uh, unnamed, undefined Muslim band of terrorists. Mm-hmm. that are first in Afghanistan and Iraq and, you know, basically any country that we want to invade, uh, they just keep moving. Who, what do we call them? ISIL or ISIS or just IS, what well, just keeps changing. Uh, mm-hmm. We just got to fight them. Fight, 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 right? And, and uh, of course, we see Dick Cheney making backroom deals with oil companies as – he is part of the Bush administration not too long after the whole 9-11 event takes off. And so it's like, all right, well, there's definitely some conspiracy there. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to mention all the Bush holdings in oil. Hmm. Wonder about that, you know. But we never really get to Israel. No. And I... Like I said, you know, when I first got woke, uh, it, it was someone had sent me a video called Loose Change. And at the same time, I found another video similar produced by someone else. And they were making connections to, you know, political Zionists. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, that would include certain families that back that, like the Rothschilds and other, mm-hmm. you know, what we call Ashkenazi Jewish families. And um, I, I just really couldn't go there at the time. Um, and, 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 and at this time, well, you know, it is what it is. Look, my listeners know that I am not a supporter of political Zionism. I, I, I think that political Zionism has everything to do with politics and the agendas of the state of Israel. Frankly, I believe that a lot of it is derived from Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah. And for those of you that listen to this podcast and also come to Bride Ministries Church, we spent 12 weeks talking about Kabbalah and what that has unfolded. And of course, for those of you that are interested uh, <laughs> because you should be, because you don't know what you don't know. Um, that is available at our website, bridemovement.com. Um, and, and we're even making a, a whole course out of it for our Bride Ministries Institute. But the, um, the, the thing is, there is a difference between anti-Semitism and anti-political Zionism. They're two different things. And and, and I say that to say, you know, every time, and I don't know if you've run into this, Christopher, but every time someone says, well, Israel did this, or Israel was actually behind this, you're anti-Semitic, as if you can't say the truth because now you are, you know, <laughs> a bigot. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, you know, it's just like a catch-all, but... Anti-Semitism actually means racism against Jews and hatred 
which I don't have. But I do know that there are players behind political Zionism that are very dark. And, and, and with that said, I, I want you to begin talking about some of these connections. Like, how has your research connected political Zionism and even Mossad and certain players to our 9-11? Right. Well, um, the first thing is, is that 9-11 was a, a crime, obviously, a, a crime of terrorism. And that meant that um, it should have been investigated by the FBI as a crime. But the attack on the Pentagon um, was considered to be an act of war. And so they lumped the whole thing at, into an act of war, and which meant that George Bush then was able to take the country to war rather than prosecuting, investigating the crime and prosecuting the guilty. That's very important because that's why 9-11 was never properly investigated. A lot of people don't understand that. They think that, oh, it was investigated very thoroughly. No, not at all. The, the, as I said, the crime scenes were being cleaned up. The evidence was being destroyed, confiscated, and destroyed, and there was no real blue ribbon investigation. And the person behind that decision was the uh, attorney general, assistant attorney general uh, at the Department of Justice who oversaw the investigation. And his name was Michael Shertoff. And Michael Shertoff is a political Zionist. His mother was one of the first Mossad agents. Um, he, he grew up in Israel um, and he was the assistant under John Ashcroft. And he, had the, he was the person who made the decisions about um, investigating those five Israeli, five dancing Israelis or scores of others who were arrested in connection to 9-11. He's the one who decided what would be investigated because he was the person who was responsible for the prosecution of the crime, if there were to be any prosecution. And Michael Sheratov was played a key role also in the previous attack at the World Trade Center back in 1993, I think it was, uh, when he was the uh, similar attorney for the District of New Jersey, which is where this crime gang or this terrorist gang was supposedly based. Um, so he, uh, as a, a dual national, he's also an Israeli citizen because of his mother's Israeli nationality. Um, he was the person who oversaw the investigation, which was what I call a non-investigation. It wasn't a real investigation because you can't have an investigation if you destroy the evidence. I mean, if your whole object is to obscure the, the guilty, to, con to protect and conceal the, the real crime. Um, so that's where, that's where it starts. But then there's a, there's a complete network of people who were involved in um, dealing with the relatives, for example, the, the, uh, the person who, who was in charge of doling out the government money, compensation money. Um, he's a Zionist. Uh, his wife was involved in it. She's also a very high Zionist. The judge who oversaw the, um, the, tort, the tort litigation in New York City, because there were 96 families who held out for a, a, a day in court, at least a day in court, to find out who, who was responsible. Um, that judge was also a political Zionist. And what you find is that at every, at every key point in this saga of 9-11, where a decision has to be made to cover up or conceal or to protect the guilty, you find a political Zionist. Every, every, every single place. And, and that, that, that consistency, to my mind, is pretty compelling to indicate that the cover-up, at least, is a Zionist cover-up, is an Israeli Zionist cover-up. 
when I say when I say Zionist, though, I as you as you you note, this involves people like the Rothschilds who don't live in Israel. Some do. Um, some of these people are, are American Americans who who are simply um, dedicated supporters of the state of Israel. And it's important to understand that this happened under um, a Likud government in Israel. Likud is the party that was created from the former Herut party, which was created by the terrorist gangs, Irgun gang and Stern gang, the Irgun and the Stern. They, they were the, one was, one was led by Menachem Begin, the other one was led by Yitzhak Shemir. Um, these men were the creators of the Herut party, which became Likud. And this is the party of terrorists. These are people who have always used terrorism. Terrorism was their specialty. And 9-11 is just a, basically a continuation of that policy by violence. Okay. Can you talk about the louder Rothschild connection? Yeah, sure. The, the, the louder Rothschild connection is, is very um, interesting because Ronald Lauder is a very high-level American billionaire. He's a member of that mega group, which was involved with the uh, Epstein case. But he, he is a, he's a son of Estee Lauder, and he's a billionaire. And he's also uh, the, the, the chairman of something called the World Jewish Congress. And at the World Jewish Congress, he rubs shoulders with the chairman of the board, David Rothschild, uh, who is, the, who is the, head, the chairman of the World Jewish Congress. And, and so the, the Ronald Lauder and the Rothschilds meet together in, this, um, in their work with the World Jewish Congress. But then Lauder also has a school. He, he established a school at, at a university in Israel called the IDC in Herzliya, which I call Mossad University because the people who run the university are former heads of Mossad. And it's uh, at that university, at his, at his Lauder School of Government, the head of the policy and strategy department um, is General Daniel Rothschild. So you have, you have this uh, Ronald Lauder connected to these Rothschilds in all of his, you know, in his, in his school that he funds in Israel and at the World Jewish Congress where he's the, uh, the, the uh, president of the, of the WJC. And, and what's important about Lauder is that Lauder was also the person who privatized the World Trade Center. The World Trade Center was property of the states of New Jersey and New York. It was property of the Port Authority of New, Jer New Jersey and New York. And in the summer of before 9-11, in July, late July, the World Trade Center was privatized. And uh, this was done under directive by Ronald Lauder because he was, he was the, the responsible director of the privatization board of New York City, New York State under Governor Pataki. And so um, it went through some negotiations, convoluted negotiations, and finally the property was turned over in a 99-year lease to Larry Silverstein. And that happened, I think, on July 26, 2001. So you have this, you know, in order to, for the 9-11 operation to go forward, it was essential that the property be privatized so that they, uh, the new owners could control the access to the building and, and allow the building to be prepared for demolition as it needed to be. Wow. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> World Jewish Congress, Rothschilds, Louder. Okay, let, let, me, um, let, me, let me go here. Okay, because this is now the next question that has to be answered. What do the political Zionists gain by covering up this terrorist act in America? Well, that's the subject of my book, um, The War on Terror, The Plot to Rule the Middle East. Um, that's a small book I wrote in 2017. To, 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 I wrote it because it was, I, th I think it's urgent for Americans to understand why 9-11 was done. And, you know, without going into all the details about how it was done, we need to understand why it was done and who did it. And as I said, when the Likud came to party, when they came to power in the late 70s, Menachem Begin was the prime minister. And the year he became prime minister, two, uh, he, he created a, uh, a conference in Jerusalem called the International Conference on, on, on International Terrorism. And in this conference in 1979, he and Benjamin Netanyahu and Netanyahu's father, they were the sponsors of the event. They called for, uh, they, they had 700 people in the audience for three days and these included people like George Bush, Papa Bush, and, and heads of media and government leaders and whatnot. And what the, what the, the whole propaganda thrust of this, of this conference was the war on terror. That the United States and Western countries should engage those terrorist organizations that plague Israel and the nations that harbor them, meaning places like Syria and Iraq and Lebanon, what have you. And... Um, Netanyahu made a book out of this conference, and he made he continued to write books in the 1980s based on conferences like this, um, calling for the war on terror. He wrote books like Fighting Terrorism, How the West Can Win, and, and like that. And and it's like the whole idea was that the, the the that the United States should take its military into the Middle East and act as a police force against these terrorist organizations and the countries that support them. And this was reiterated in various documents like the PNAC document in, in 2000 and 1998, which basically called for the United States to occupy Iraq. And well, when 9-11 happened, it was the spark plug. It was the spark that lit the fire that they had prepared. They had prepared this bonfire, the war on terror, for years, for decades. But in order to get it lit, they had to have something that hit the American population like a, 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 a strong strike to the stomach, and, or like Pearl Harbor. They actually said that in order for this, this, this new policy to go into effect, we may very well need something like a new Pearl Harbor. Something like that will have to happen to hasten the political consensus to go there. Well, 9-11 was that. And so when you, when you see that in order for 9-11, in order for the war on terror to happen, they had to... They had to have a false narrative around the 9-11 attacks, which led to the conclusion that it was Osama bin Laden, and now was the time to start a war. And in fact, before the third tower had even fallen that day, Ehud Barak, the Israeli foreign, uh, former chief of defense, former prime minister, was in the studio of BBC World Television and uh, Sky News in London, basically telling the Western world in English that now was the time for the United States to engage in an operational concrete war on terrorism. And his explanation was, was, was what George Bush said, told the people that night as well, 
that this was the time to start this this war, this crusade against Islamic terrorists. Mm-hmm. So they've got it. They got it. And and they got it in spades. They got the, the Israelis had had a strategic plan that they had written back in 1982 about how they would conquer the Middle East by basically uh, balkanizing, breaking down the Arab states, breaking them into pieces along ethnic lines and creating like a, it's called balkanization, creating little ethnic statelets. And, and this is exactly what's been happening in places like Iraq and Syria. And on the, the, the plan is called the, the Yanon plan, Y-I-N-O-N. This Yanon plan, written, published in 1982 in Hebrew, said exactly that, that on the Eastern Front, the first targets of Israel's first targets will be Iraq and Syria. Now, where has the United States been engaged in war for the last two decades? Right. So it's like we have the American people, we have no, the American government, the United States government, we have no real interest in Iraq or, or Syria or Somalia or Libya, what have you. But um, we have been waging war there, spending, as, George, as, as Donald Trump said, um, $7 trillion. And what have we gotten for it? He said nothing. Now, he's, he's correct about that. We have, spent, we have spent upwards of $6 trillion, and it's an incredible waste of money for no American interest. So why are we doing it? And you see, now, now Trump's in a lot of trouble because it's probably he's in trouble because he didn't start the war with Iran soon enough. Because the, in, there was a, a memo circulating in the Pentagon that uh, General Wesley Clark found out when he went to the Pentagon shortly after 9-11. And in that shopping list, that memo, it called for the uh, overthrow of seven Middle Eastern countries in five years. And it went Iraq and Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off with Iran. And, he, and, and, and General Wesley Clark, who was the supreme allied commander in Europe during the Yugoslavia campaign, he spoke when he was running for president in 2007. He said, that, he said that, you know, when 9-11 happened, we didn't know what happened. We didn't understand it. He said we did not have American understanding of it. What was he saying? He was saying that the understanding, the interpretation of what happened on 9-11 came to us from outside, outside countries, outside country being Israel. Israel. Israel interpreted 9-11 for us, and Israel continues to interpret the, the Middle East for Americans. So you have, you have things like the site intelligence group, who whenever something happens, like the, the recent stabbing on the London Bridge, the, the, the claim that this was ISIS that did this comes from this little Israeli think tank, or not Israeli think tank, but Israeli propaganda tank in Bethesda, Maryland, who provides, provides this, this information to the media and the governments to steer the war on terror. Now, We've been duped on the war on terror. And the only way we can end the war on terror is to understand how we've been deceived, which is why I wrote the book Solving 9-11, The Deception Changed the World. The deception. It's all based on deception. And it, sometimes it's very simple deception, like a, a, a stage magician would do. But sometimes it's much more complicated. But it's all deception. Oh, my gosh. You know, see, the thing is, what you're saying is so compelling. And, and here's the, 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 the thing that really rubs me uh, the wrong way. You know, I uh, covered some of this when I was um, going through this series that we did on exposing Kabbalah because Kabbalah, which is derived from Jewish mysticism, and um, reveal something known as the Kabbalistic tree of life, which 
is well the foundation of a lot of new age and other cult practices um, has belief systems attached to it that are eschatological in nature, meaning that there are end times viewpoints attached to this belief system um, that plug into Mishnah and you know other Jewish writings based on the oral Torah and become an interpretive lens for Old Testament passages found in the Christian Bible. Well, here's where some of this really gets confusing because many Christians uh, have a hard time digesting anything that isn't pro-Israel because they feel that that is against the agenda of God himself and that God is the author of everything that's happening in a present-day Israel, the state of Israel, because, well, that's his prophetic timeline for the world. And, well, the, the fact of the matter is that some of this, and really a lot of that perspective comes from the Schofield Bible, which became the major evangelistic tool of dispensationalism, which is a whole Christian uh, uh, interpretive model that says God has this major um, agenda, the, the macro plan that, that involves the Jews and Israel genetically, and that the church is nothing more than a parenthesis in God's overarching plan. And so with this interpretive model, you end up with a, a, a scenario and an end times viewpoint that places a, a, a Middle East Israel, the state of Israel, at the center of God's plan. And then this Bible with these footnotes, along with pre-trib rapture and other doctrines, gets put into every American seminary as well as seminaries around the world. So you have a whole generation, and really truly generations of preachers and teachers in various denominations uh, teaching this ideology, this fundamental paradigm that produces Christians for Israel, pro-Israel Christians, and support Israel no matter what they are doing because that's what God wants you to do. But what people don't know is that the Schofield Bible, written by Cyrus Schofield, was actually supported, bankrolled, and printed by high-level Zionist bankers, mm -hmm. including Samuel Gompers, Fiorello LaGuardia, Abraham Strauss, Bernard Baruch, and Jacob Schiff. So the Christian world was actually prepared decades ahead of time to back, pray for, and fund <laughs> with their money um, movements coming through a political Zionist movement that was really authored by the Rothschilds pre-World War II. And uh, this is where... I begin to see something that is just so much larger, so much broader than I even have language to articulate at this point in time. There's something deep and very dark going on. And it's like the setup 
is it, it just keeps getting bigger for me, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I hear research like what you're doing and it just compounds the whole, mm-hmm. the whole thing. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. It, it's like, because when you understand, when you go from the basics about 9-11 and you see that the 9-11 truth has been covered up um, and that the cover-up has been going on for 18 years in the media and in the government. There, is no, there are no 9-11 truthers running for president. There are no, um, there's nobody in Congress calling for 9-11 truth or investigation, which indicates that the power behind the 9-11 crime actually controls our media and our government. Because the only people who benefit, the only people who benefit from the, uh, any investigation of 9-11, I mean, from not having an investigation, are those who are responsible. So this is, this is how, how serious it is. And as you said, the, the, uh, the basement, the foundation, the structure behind the Zionism goes into the Christian church, as you said, the, the dispensationalism. And they've done the same thing to the, 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 the Jewish people of Eastern Europe. They, they had to Zionize them too. They had to make them Zionists. Mm-hmm. And if you, there's a, there's a book, uh, there's an encyclopedia called the Encyclopedia of Israel and Zionism. It's a two volume set. The one from 1970, I think it is, um, printed in Israel, is very good because it, it, it explains, when you look up the Rothschilds or look up secret societies, it explains how the Rothschilds seeded Zionism in Eastern Europe in the, in the Pale of Settlement. Back in the days in the late 1800s and early 1900s, you know, and so that this was a, this was a well thought out, very well organized and well funded operation to remove the Jews from Eastern Europe to Palestine and to um, get Christians to support the creation of the state of Israel. You know, in 1917, we had the, we had the Balfour Declaration that got mm-hmm. the United States into World War I, mm-hmm. which basically promised the Rothschilds um, a Jewish homeland in Palestine. That letter was written by Lord Balfour. Well, it, was, it wasn't written by him. It was written by some Zionists, but he signed it. But it was, it was written, addressed to Lord Rothschild. And that letter was used in order to get the American Zionists, the American Jews, to support America's entry into the war, World War I. So it's this, this, we're dealing with a very big and very strong and very organized thing. And you can see that. You can see that it's reflected in the media in America. It's reflected in the, in the way that when the Israeli leader speaks in Congress, he gets more standing ovations than the President of the United States. I don't think the president of the United States would get any standing ovations at this point. <laughs> well, and that's another subject. Now, here's the thing, okay? Benjamin Netanyahu is in international news right now. Okay, so all eyes on Benjamin. He is not doing well, all right? Uh, there's a lot of heat because he's guilty of a lot of crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that tie in? What are your thoughts on Benjamin Netanyahu at this point? Well, he's, um, he's, you know, he's, he's still the prime minister of Israel. He's um, under, you know, there are several cases pending against him that they would, um, should go forward, but he's trying to get a, 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 a truce from the, from the legislature, the Knesset or something. But um, Netanyahu would be not the first president, prime minister of Israel go to, to go to prison. I mean, Ehud Olmert before him was, uh, went to prison. Uh, but uh, Netanyahu is, like I said, he's like the godfather of the war on terror. 
And so that he's being protected because this war on terror needs to go ahead, needs to go forward. And, and so I, it seems that he's got some protection. He's, he's, he's being protected so that he doesn't get removed from power. Um, but I think that Netanyahu is among those people in Israel who know exactly what happened on 9-11 and who did it. Um, because he, Netanyahu was in the Sairet Matkal. He was in this elite commando force under Ehud Barak. And um, this, is, this is Israeli intelligence. This is an Israeli intelligence commando force. So um, his connection to Ehud Barak and, and uh, Israeli intelligence, I'm, I'm sure that he knows who did it. I'm sure that he was involved in it. And when 9-11 happened, for example, I told you how he had been pushing for the war on terror for years and years and years. He actually said, he actually wrote in some of his books that, you know, if America doesn't start this war on terror and start fighting these terrorists, you will find that these terrorists will put a nuclear bomb in the basement of the World Trade Center. I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like that back in like 1995 in one of his books. So he, he's the person who was, had the most to gain from the 9-11 crime. And when the New York Times interviewed him on 9-11 and asked him, what will this mean for Israeli-American relations? Netanyahu blurted out, it's very good. He said, well, it's not very good, but it'll, it'll, bring, it'll generate immediate sympathy for the state of Israel. And as you see, they have gotten their agenda through. And he being the godfather of this agenda, to a very large degree, is protected. He's protected. He's not being accused of any crimes for 9-11, of course. He's being accused of crimes for, you know, minor things. Wow. All right. All right. Now, now, now this is where I've been waiting to get to this whole program. Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, Mossad, and a connection to 9-11. What's going on? Yeah, well... Um... Well, Jeffrey Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein, um, is had this network going with Ghislaine Maxwell. Um, her father was, of course, Robert Maxwell, who was the guy who sold Promise Software for the Israelis. Her father uh, was found dead floating in the Mediterranean Sea um, a few a few years ago. He was a very, very high-level agent for the State of Israel, working under a man called um, Yitzhak Shamir. And the thing is that what, what, what Ghislaine Maxwell and uh, Jeffrey Epstein were running was a kind of a, uh, a trap. They were, they, were, they were running the sexual operation, which, which compromised people of influence, politicians and what have you, who fell for the trap, who got themselves into compromising situations, whether on his island or his houses or whatever. And this is being used to control people control the political elite of the United States and other countries. And you see how they even got the, you know, the Royal family of Britain involved. Now this operation was an operation that is closely connected to the state of Israel and Ehud Barak. Ehud Barak is a, is a, a close friend of um, Jeffrey Epstein and, and they were business partners. Now the, the, what happened with, with Epstein is that how did Epstein, where did Epstein's money come from to run this operation? Well, it came from somebody called um, Leslie Wexner, who's the Victoria's Secrets uh, magnate from Ohio. And, and 
Jer Leslie Wexner was one of these American billionaires who was working with Ronald Lauder. He's another one. Uh, Steven Spielberg, the Bronfmans, people of that sort. They had this group called Mega, which was created by Yitzhak Shamir in 1991. In 1991, after the first Gulf War, there was a pressure on Israel to compromise at the Madrid Peace Conference in the spring of, 2000, in spring of 1991. And Yitzhak Shamir was pushed. Netanyahu was at the conference with him in Madrid. They were being pushed to make compromises on a, to, to help the Palestinian situation be resolved. Of course, Yitzhak Shamir wanted nothing to do with any compromises with the Palestinians, so they, they, they blocked it. And in order to, in order to win the, the public relations battle in the United States, they created this group called Mega. And Leslie Wexner turned over a huge amount of his fortune, millions of dollars, to Jeffrey Epstein, who ran something called the, the Epstein or the, the Wexner uh, Foundation. And, and with that money, he was a partner with Ehud Barak. So Jeffrey Epstein and Ehud Barak were working very closely together. And Ep Epstein was providing money from Wexner to Barak, millions of dollars. And then Barak, Barak founded a co company. And on the board of directors of that company, a board of advisors, is um, Michael Epstein, Michael uh, Shertoff, the man who did not investigate 9-11. So you have... You have Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein, who supposedly was killed in prison, connected to Ehud Barak and Michael Shertoff. So you have the, the this is a, a, a connection of the highest people at the highest level of the 9-11 operation working with Epstein. So that's why the Epstein case has not been investigated any further than, than his death, his supposed death in the prison in New York. Because again, this is a case that's not meant to be investigated any further. It's, it's meant to be stopped and, um, because, it, because it would reveal too much about how Israel operates. Wow. So then I'm just going to ask you this question because I, I don't know the answer to this question. Mm -hmm. um, I have thoughts. Do you think that the operation that Epstein was running was backed and protected by the CIA, uh, Mossad, both or neither. Uh, and who was really pulling the strings, protecting him for all of these years, years and years and years. Yeah. Um, well, I think that there's definitely an Israeli component there because Ehud Barak was a very close close friend of, of Epstein. And Ehud Barak, for example, there's photographs of him entering into Epstein's townhouse in New York and coming out with a scarf around his face. Um, as a former prime minister, he go, everywhere he goes, he goes with bodyguards from the Israeli state. Um, he wouldn't be going into a, something like Epstein's house without the knowledge and, and approval of Mossad. I mean, they, Israeli security and military would know because he's, you know, the, so I think that the Israelis are definitely involved in it. And, and the fact that Mega, I mean, Leslie Wexner, provided the money, it, 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 it indicates to me that there's um, probably um, involvement of, in my mind, the Rothschilds as well. Because, um, because this operation was, was a very big one. And I don't think that Israel did it on its own. I think that it may have had 
financing from um, somebody like the Rothschilds. But um, this is the way this is the way this kind of thing has, has been operating. Is that is that it's not just the Israeli state that does these things. But I, I do think that I do think that the Israeli intelligence was involved in it completely. All right. This has been fascinating. I have one more question for you. Uh, how do you interpret Michael Bloomberg now entering the presidential race? That's a very good question because you see, Michael Bloomberg was the mayor who, who became the mayor after 9-11. He would have been elected on that day, 9-11, had the election gone ahead, um, but it was, it was delayed, postponed. And then he became the, the, the mayor of New York for the next 12 years, unprecedented. He was given a third term. Um, the law was changed in order to let that happen. But what he what he did, Bloomberg did, he 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 maintained a very tight bureaucratic cover up of 9/11 for 12 years, because we've had in New York City thousands of people dying from exposure to the smoke, as I told talked about before. Um, first responders, um, hundreds of them died on 9/11. Thousands have died since simply due to exposure to the smoke from the World Trade Center. And again, we've, we've, had, we've had suppression of their voices in New York and around the country because um, they had to stifle. They had to stifle all the discussion about the, the evidence of 9-11, what really happened. And when you go to New York City, you'll find that the firefighters are not able to talk about 9-11. They're not willing to. They're not able to because they've been threatened not to. And, and, and that's, I mean uh, – Mayor Bloomberg also was, for example, they wanted to bring the mastermind of 9-11, the so-called mastermind of 9-11 from Guantanamo for trial in New York City. And he said, no, no, we can't have a trial in New York City. It'll be too, it'll be too uh, expensive, too, too risky. So I think that Bloomberg is coming to the, into, the, into the fray to be the, I think they intend for him to go a long way. I wouldn't be surprised if he became the Democratic candidate. Although he's not popular with voters, um, they do things like this in, in France, for example, when, when the Le Pen was coming along very strongly, the Rothschilds inserted, um, Macron and Macron won. But I think that he's there to be, to, con to continue the cover up of nine 11 on a national level, because it has to, they have to maintain that in order for, in order for nine 11 and the war on terror to continue the cover up to continue they have to control the White House, and they have they have seem to have some control over over Donald Trump um, because he hasn't done anything for 9/11 Truth in three years. And I don't expect he's going to do anything about 9/11 Truth, but they need to in order for the agenda to go forward. They need to have uh, a a person who is dedicated to that agenda, and that's where Michael Bloomberg comes in. He would be a, he would be a dedicated servant of. of that Zionist agenda behind 9-11 and the war on terror. So we'll see what happens with him. Wow. Well, uh, folks, let me, let me tell you something. Um, I have been talking today with Christopher Bolin, and uh, he is a journalist researcher, and as you can tell, a 9-11 truther. Uh, he has a series of books called Solving 9-11 series, as well as another book called War on Terror. Uh, 
heaps and heaps of articles that he's written, all of which can be found at his website, bolin.com, B-O-L-L-Y-N.com. Christopher, I just want to thank you for joining me today and sharing your research and all of your hard work with us. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. Um, This is a very important subject and it's not talked about enough in America. Um, You know, as I said, the only way we can regain our country, regain our freedom and end the war is to understand the deception that brought it up, that, that, that foisted this upon us. So understanding the deception is key to ending the war. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. And folks, that's all I have for it today. We'll see you next week. God bless and Godspeed. You've been listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. This podcast is a production of Bride Ministries International. Visit our website at brideministriesinternational.com to enjoy the Bride Ministries Church, the Bride Ministries Institute, free resources, and to support us financially. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.